Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes, and we are fortunate to be joined once again by our good friend Peter Weiner, who's now a uh, new senior fellow at the Trinity Forum, writer for the New York Times and the Atlantic. And his latest book is The Death of Politics, How to Heal Our Frayed Republic After Trump. So first of all, good morning, Peter. Thank you. Great to be with you, Charlie. It's always terrific to be on the show. I'm looking at the rundown of things that you and I are going to be discussing today. School massacres, abortion, sex abuse, and big lies. So uh, happy Thursday. <laughs> I'm kidding. We'll see I'm what ha- Friday brings. It's uh, it's a broken world, and sometimes the vividness of the brokenness uh, is almost overwhelming, and that's what this Thursday brings us. Yeah, every, every once in a while we think, boy, we are living in the darkest possible timeline and then the universe says, hold my beer. I've, <laughs> I've got something worse. I just wanted to start off, though, with you had a great tweet this morning about Paul Gosar. In case people had missed this, Congressman Paul Gosar put out a tweet baselessly calling the uh, school shooter down in Texas a leftist illegal alien transsexual or something like that, which I don't know, he got it off 4chan. And I thought you made a good point. And Republicans think the problem is Liz Cheney. That really encapsulates the moment, doesn't it? It really does. It really does. Um, you know, we can get into the discussion of the GOP and the direction it's heading, but the reality is that this is a deeply corrupted party, and certain things like that really illustrate it. I mean, Liz Cheney is a is a is a courageous and heroic figure speaking uh, the truth. And she was not only criticized, she's basically being exiled and targeted in a way that no other Republican is. And you get this Paul Gosar, who's very unwell mentally and is is an embarrassment in, in every way. And you know, they just go on their merry way. So this is the sort of moral inversion of the Republican Party, which you and I have been talking about uh, since right around 2015, 2016. Uh, but it, in some respects, it just seems to get worse. It does. And I was I was thinking this morning of your book, The Death of Politics, uh, when you and I talked about that, I was sitting in a hotel room in Miami and we were doing the the podcast. It must it must have been 2018, right? 2019. 2019. OK, so yeah. and things were bad and we were both describing how things were bad. And uh, unfortunately, things have gotten worse, maybe exponentially worse. But At the risk of engaging a little bit of wish casting, I wanted to get your take on what happened this week, because what happened in Georgia, as I said in my newsletter this morning, is is not nothing. It was an old fashioned uh, shellacking of Donald Trump's anointed candidates. Uh, His vendetta tour uh, crashed and burned. Uh, Brian Kemp, uh, the governor of Georgia, won by more than 50 points over Donald Trump's candidate, Brad Rappensberger, against every expectation and all the odds, survives, avoids, runoff. This election was several referenda on the big lie. And if you're looking for at least one bright spot, this was a a defeat. Georgia voters, yes, they voted for Marjorie Taylor Greene. Yes, they voted for Herschel Walker. But they also, I, I think, repudiated the big lie in a rather dramatic way. And give me your sense of how much significance we should read into that. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I'm uncertain about it. The outcome could have been worse, for sure. Uh, let me tell you what my, my sense of, of the situation is. Um, I, I don't think that uh, running on the big lie, uh, there are uh, plenty of candidates that clearly don't want to do that and aren't doing it. There are far fewer uh, Republicans who are willing to dispute publicly the big lie. Um, so you've still got Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, and that's that's about it. Most of them are trying trying to to avoid it. 
What's happening with Trump, I think, was, was predictable, which is his grip on the party is weakening. That was inevitable. I mean, he was president of the United States, so with every passing mm-hmm. year, he gets further away from that. But this is a party that has been so completely transformed into a Trump party and a MAGA party, and that's got its own worrisome elements, uh, too. And I also wonder with with Trump, you know, his endorsements tell us something, but I don't know how much it tells us. He's such a sui generis figure that it could be a situation where, you know, voters in the GOP and the base kind of ignore to some extent, his endorsements, but that still might be different than if and when he runs in 2024. Um, so we'll see. One, one other th- thought about Trump and, and, and the GOP, well, two things about it. One is that he is certainly a weaker figure than he was a year ago or three years ago when he was president, but it depends on what your baseline is. He's certainly a stronger figure than he was in 2015 when he walked down right. the, the escalator and, and did his announcement. So he was a completely dominant figure. He could lose influence in the party and still be the candidate in 2024. The other thing is that um, when Trump ran in 2016, he ran against the establishment. There was nobody like him. So he had that lane all to himself. But precisely because the party has been transformed into his image, he is less uh, isolated, but less of a distinctive figure than he was. And other people are imitating him in some some different ways. And so his lane isn't as clear in 2024 if he decides to run as it was in 2016. So, you know, it's murky. Uh, we've still got people like J.D. Vance and Dr. Mm-hmm, Oz and right. Sarah Huckabee Sanders and Ken Paxton and, and others. So I think it's a mixed picture. It is. And there's also the other lane that's at least coming into focus, which is, you know, Trumpism without Trump. You know, people like uh, Ron DeSantis and, and others who basically say you get the same thing without all the tweets and all of the baggage. And it, there does seem to be at least some sentiment in the Republican Party among Republican voters to say, uh, yeah, let's give him a gold watch. But could we move on? By the way, it's ha- same thing seems to be happening on the Democratic side. Have you noticed this, that there is this this already kind of this uh, this uneasiness? Can we can we just avoid um, a replay of 2016? Do we really want these, you know, uh, 80-something-year-old men running against one another? Uh, so I, I, I do sense a little bit of, look, I mean, if he's the nominee, uh, Republicans will, will rally around. They will vote for him. I mean, there's no question. It is a Trumpist party. But Trumpism without Trump seems to be to be a thing. I think that's right. I think it is. And it, these different candidates are are uh, incarnating Trumpism and the, their version of, of MAGA world in different ways. You've got Ron DeSantis, you've got uh, Ted Cruz, you've got Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean, you've got a lot of different people. So in some ways, you know, when I think about where we are now vis-a-vis Trump and the Republican Party, I'm very happy he's not president because I think that he he was a, a sociopath and having a sociopath in the most powerful office in the world is a very dangerous thing. And um, I, it could have been worse than it was and it was bad enough. So not having him as president is really important. We shouldn't underestimate that. On the other hand, the pathologies of, of, of Trumpism have spread. And in a way that makes it different than a cult of personality. And a cult of personality, when the cult leader dies or, or fades away, so does the cult in this case, uh, it is manifesting itself in uh, in different ways. There's a kind of playbook, and each person is playing that playbook a little bit differently. But the disposition, the sentiments, the sensibilities of the Republican Party are still very dangerous, very damaged. 
So let's just briefly talk about the gun issue, which uh, I I will say virtually every day, you know, I find to be a very, very frustrating, uh, futile discussion. But the reality is, is that there are common sense reforms that would make a difference that have overwhelming public support. None of them necessarily going to happen. Uh, David French has written very eloquently about uh, the need for more red flag laws. Uh, we could raise the age for gun purchases so that 18-year-olds can't buy AR-15s. We could ban high-capacity magazines, ban bump stocks. We could have universal background checks, a new poll out today. Something like 88% of Americans favor requiring background checks on all gun sales. Something like 75% support a national database with information about gun sales, even bans on assault-style weapons, 67%, all of these things. And yet, the pro-life party seems unwilling to support any gun measure whatsoever. And it's been this way now for more than a decade, and there's no indication whatsoever that they're going to change their position on this, is there? No, I don't think that there is. In, in fact, I think it probably is going the other way because the, the Republican Party is becoming more of a rural party uh, than, than it has been in the past. So I don't, I don't think there's much chance at all that the Republicans are going to move on their stance on guns. And this has been the case just for, for, uh, for decades and decades. And this is a, you know, it's a tell, as they say in poker. Um, it, it just reveals the fact that uh, so many of these people, and this is not true of only Republicans, but but it is true of them, and we've seen this during the Trump years, is that it's it's reaching for power and gaining power and holding power that, that matters. And the degree to which um, these people who um, are given the public trust uh, and asked to legislate for the common good will twist themselves into, into knots to do things or not do things, um, because not because it's right, but because it uh, it's the pathway to power is um, is really really um, discouraging. Um, but I, I I can't imagine that the party is going to going to move an inch from where it is on on the gun issue. The New York Times this morning has a has a roundup uh, in more than one hundred GOP midterm ads this year. Guns, guns, guns. Using guns as kind of a shorthand for being conservative, for being right wing. It's a tribal signaling. And so you have one ad after another. You have congressmen posing with their families, uh, putting out Christmas pictures, holding weaponry. It's not just that they are supporting Second Amendment constitutional rights. It feels like it's a fetish. Yeah. And I don't think that Anyone who thinks that people will be shamed or chagrined by what just happened in Texas uh, hasn't been paying attention because I don't think there's going to be any change about this at all. People like Ted Cruz put out YouTube videos where they'd cook bacon on the barrel of a machine gun to show how cool and manly and macho they are and, and whatever. And you would think that that would be absolutely humiliating, but no shame at all. None. Yeah, I think that actually underscores a larger, larger point, Charlie. Um, you're right. I think it is a kind of a, a fetish. And there's another quality to this, which is it's a kind of in-your-face quality. Mm-hmm. I think what's driving a lot of stuff, like the Christmas cars with people holding assault weapons, you know, the, the entire family, which is offensive but revealing because what it says essentially is we're going to own the libs. We know that this drives them crazy and we're going to do it. And I think what's different now than the situation in the 90s and the 2000s and even in the 80s when when you and I were formed by conservatism and and were members of good standing in the Republican Party, 
is that there was a shame factor back then. And we see this with Tucker Carlson. If Tucker Carlson had, had you know, uh, done just a fraction of the kind of thing he does on a nightly basis 10, 15 years ago, there would have been an outrage. There would have had to have been some walking back, some apologies, something of, of that kind that not only never happens anymore, it's the opposite. They double down. And it's this notion that if it upsets the libs, then this is going to rally our base. And so their existence, in part, is to try and provoke, to incite, to create feelings of, uh, of antipathy. And that's a bad place for a society to be, be in because there are you know, worse things than hypocrisy, and that is just sort of jettisoning the standards. And I feel like in the public sphere, we certainly see this in the right-wing uh, ecosystem, the notion of shame is uh, doesn't doesn't exist. People can say and do just about anything, and there are no uh, negative ramifications for it. This is a good segue into what I wanted to ask you about next, because at this moment, when our discourse is uh, has become so toxic and show and so post shame, we are about to have a very intense debate about abortion. Speaking of the timelines, like what else could we have that would be divisive and that would tear us apart? Hey, let's overturn Roe versus Wade and have a debate about abortion. So you had a piece uh, a while back in The Atlantic, actually just a few days ago. There's a better way to debate abortion. Um, caution and epistemic humility can guide our approach. Just talk to me about that a little bit. How, what, what, what do you mean by, by that? Yeah, for as long as I've really thought about the issue of abortion, uh, I have found it uh, a tremendously morally complicated issue. And it's fraught with mystery, in my estimation. I'm pro-life, and I always have been, but that's a prudential judgment. It's not a judgment based on absolute certainty. I think there are mysteries in terms of when two soulless cells come together, what happens then, and what happens throughout pregnancy, and uh, when uh, to, to use a religious phrase, ensoulment occurs. And I find myself on a continuum on abortion. I always have. I don't think what happens moments after conception is the same situation as eight months into a pregnancy or for a two-year-old child. I don't react that way. And I don't think most people who are pro-life react that way emotionally and viscerally. And I've had conversations with people. I alluded to this in, in the Atlantic essay Back in the 1990s, this was pre-internet, so I had a fax exchange with a leading pro-life thinker, and I was trying to, to, to probe his thinking and to see whether he would follow the logical end of his suppositions. And his supposition is that abortion at any point is the killing of a child, even potentially the murder of a, of a child. And I was saying, if you were governor of Maryland and you could pass any law that you wanted, not was politically uh, doable, but what was morally responsible from your in your estimation, what do you think the penalty should be for, for a woman and a doctor mm. who um, have an abortion or, or, or prosecute an abortion? Would it be murder? Would it be manslaughter? And he, he was pretty evasive because he didn't want to go where his premises right. you know, led him. On the other hand, the, the pro-choice constituency, to me, you know, late-term abortion is also revealing because at some point, we, we know this with sonograms, and at some point, it seems to me that that fetus becomes a person. Um, and if you're talking about five minutes before delivery versus five minutes after delivery, the only difference is location. Doesn't that entity, that child have certain rights? 
then the question becomes, well, where do you draw the line? Is it, is it viability or is it brain waves? Is it dreams? Uh, is it that the, 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 the uh, child fetus feels pain? And to me, that's so capricious and so arbitrary that we don't really know where to do it. And so you're left with this sort of conundrum. And that's why I'm, you know, my view is if you're going to err on the side of, of life, I think it was Ronald Reagan who once said mm-hmm. that if you find a person face down in a gutter, do you call a hearse or an ambulance? You do the ambulance because you, you hope and assume that the person may be alive. But I'm really conflicted with it. And, and the essay was just a, a way to try and honestly explain to people how I've thought about that issue, why it's complicated, and why we should, in, in my view, have some understanding about people who hold views different than we do. So because we have an overload of heavy-duty topics, didn't I say in the event, you know, guns, abortion, lies, your latest piece is one of these, and speaking of gut-wrenching uh, pieces, uh, is about the Southern Baptist and the new report about sex abuse. And, and you, you write, no atheist has done as much damage to the Christian faith as the church. Uh, you know, for abuse to happen under any circumstances is gut-wrenching. When it happens in a church setting perpetrated by people viewed as spiritual leaders, by the very ones entrusted with the care and formation of the young, it is much worse. So let's talk about this. I'm, I'm hoping to have uh, Russell Moore on the podcast in the future who's written about this, not as a crisis, but as an apocalypse. But you have uh, taken a deep dive in, in the latest issue of The Atlantic into this, and I want to talk about that when we come back. Do you hate hearing ads? If so, I've got a solution for you. Join Bulwark Plus, where members enjoy ad-free editions of this show and all the podcasts in our Bulwark network like Beg to Differ with Mona Charon and The Focus Group with Sarah Longwell. There's also the member-only podcast, The Secret Show, and The Next Level with Tim Miller. You can give a Bulwark Plus membership a try for the next 30 days for free. Simply go to thebulwark.com slash charlie to claim your free trial today. This offer is exclusively for listeners of this podcast, The Bulwark Podcast. That is thebulwark.com slash charlie. We are back with Peter Weiner, senior fellow at the Trinity Forum, writer for the New York Times and the Atlantic, whose latest piece is about this absolutely stunning report Uh, not just about the prevalence of sex abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention, but the way in which the leaders of this church covered it up, um, handled it. So let's let's just talk about this, because these results of this third-party investigation found that the leaders of the conference hid sex abuse, ignored, minimized, or attempted to destroy the abuse victims and 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 you include a quote from one of the survivors you know i i knew it was rotten but it is astonishing and infuriating this is a denomination that is through and through about power it's misappropriated power it does not in any way reflect the jesus i see in the scriptures i am so gutted so i guess the question is how could this happen and go on so long what what is the mentality that would behave in the way the leaders of this convention operated for years. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, you read that report and it's just layer upon layer of, of depravity. Um, and the human damage and, 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 and the human cost and the harm and the injury that, that, uh, that these guys, and they're all guys, um, they're all men, um, inflicted uh, on the um, abuse survivors 
is just horrifying. And I should say that these are people who uh, have identified themselves over the years as kind of heretic hunters, as, as, as protectors of doctrine. Uh, they were quick to judge and to be unforgiving of anyone that they felt was contrary to, to their interpretation of scripture. For them, the great evils was secularism, liberalism, and wokeism. And then you find out about this, and this, this study covered a 20-year year period. It's a really, really good question and an important question about what's the mentality that allows something like this to, to happen. Uh, you know, one thing I would say is that these are the corrupting effects of, uh, of power. I've come uh, to believe in the study of, sort of Christian history, including uh, the times in which we live. I come up with the elegant formulation that Christians suck with power. I just think that when when they have power, and this is true of, of a lot of people, I and mean, this was the right, the key insight of the founders in terms of our political mm -hmm, system, mm -hmm. we're all prone to that. There's human nature. And in this case, what was going on was that these people were afraid of lawsuits, and they decided that they wanted to protect the institution rather than to protect the people who were being abused. And they convinced themselves, at least in part, that their larger mission and ministry would be badly damaged. Uh, and so we've got to keep this secret. I think probably early on, they thought that they could contain this and it got worse and they got more and more trapped into it. I think on a deeper level, what you have is people who are religious, but from a Christian perspective, the affections of their hearts um, toward Christ had been lost. There was no reality there. And I think what happens is when religious people have their hearts severed uh, from sources of grace uh, and forgiveness and love, it's worse than not being religious at all. Because what it does is it reinforces certain attitudes of judgmentalism, lack of forgiveness, hardness, arrogance, and those kind of qualities. And we saw that in spades with these, these people. And then they re they, there was the self-reinforcing mechanism that happened. These were people who thought alike as a small group and they decided, look, we've got to protect the Southern Baptist Convention, and these survivors are a threat to us, and right. we've got to take them. We've got to take them down. But it is so antithetical to Christianity. You know, it was interesting, Charlie. I uh, just a, a quick anecdote here. I got a note from a pastor in the Northern Virginia area who said I was saying to fellow pastors the other day. If I weren't a Christian now, apart from the irresistible grace of God, I'd have no interest at all in considering the faith Christians proclaim, considering this abuse and a host of others. Change that, not no interest, but downright disdain. And I sent that to a leading figure in Christianity, that note without that person's name. And this individual wrote back and said, not only do I receive notes like that all the time, I said something very close to that myself as recently as two hours ago. Huh. This shows you the radiating effects, the damage, not only to an unbelieving world who sees this sort of moral freak show and says, I would never want to be a part of, of it, but to people within the faith who are unsettled and saying, what about the transforming effects of faith? Uh, this this is worse than you find often in, in an unbelieving world. No, it's interesting you would say that because, you know, I've been thinking along those lines that this is the, the, the church largely spoken. And by the way, when I when I throw it in, I'm talking about, you know, the, the, the scandals with the, with the Catholic Church, you know, throughout the, some of the problems, you know, the politicization, radicalization of the evangelical church, the abuse in the, in the Southern Baptist uh, Convention. The church has had crises in the past, uh, crises of image, crises of faith, scandals. 
strikes me that there is an alignment of the planets. That this is one of the most difficult moments for Christian witness, at least in my lifetime, because of exactly what you just articulated, that it is discrediting. And the headline on your piece captures this, that no atheist has done remotely as much damage to the Christian faith as Christian leaders right now. Yeah, it's it's paralleled with, I argue, and I think you did at the uh, time as well, that Donald Trump would do damage to the Republican Party that Hillary Clinton could not possibly do because he would have been speaking as someone who represented the Republican Party who was from within. And so the power of people who become corrupt, um, who are within an institution, a party, a church, um, is tremendously more powerful often than, than people on the um, on the outside. And again, these are people who often position themselves, and, and the white evangelical world has done this to a tremendous degree in the last number of years, decades, but particularly in the last half decade or so, speaking with such judgment and ferocity against other people and the degree of the, of, of the hypocrisy compounded with the degree of the corruption and the depravity is just awful. I had a breakfast with a friend of mine who's actually a pastor that was instrumental in my own journey of faith when I was in, in high school. And we had breakfast and he's a wonderful guy. And he told me how pained he was by this. And he used the phrase generational catastrophe. He mm -hmm. said, Pete, you don't understand the generational catastrophe that I'm seeing that's happening. And I've, I've heard this from hmm. so many different pastors and, and theologians, particularly among young people, but not only there. And so these people who have positioned themselves as sort of the vanguard of doctrine and faith, and who's, who said that the main thing that animated their life was the proclamation of the gospel, have done more than uh, any, anyone else to, uh, to undermine that. So it's really painful. It is painful, and it's also, and the word is overused, but ironic, because as you describe, you know, what's happened in with the Southern Baptists, it goes right to the top of the organization. And, and it was done very, very consciously and rationalized. You know, they lied, they engaged in cover-ups, they decided with, with those who were credibly accused of abuse, they vilified victims of abuse. And this wasn't a secret. This wasn't, you know, all done in, you know, it was like, not like anybody had never heard of it because the survivors made phone calls, they sent emails, they held rallies, they contacted the media only to be met with the stonewalling resistance and hostility by members of the executive committee. And, you know, in, in, you, you quote the, the general counsel um, of the SBC calling the victim's efforts. He called them a satanic scheme to completely yeah. distract us from evangelism. Yeah. So they made this part of the faith, which was to reject the testimony and the witness of these victims. That's exactly right. It's just enraging. That is, they use the scriptures as a weapon against abuse victims. And if you talk to clinical psychologists, the most important factor, if an abuse victim is able to survive and to make meaning out of their life, the most important factor is, are they believed when they come forward? And these awful people, the SBC, not only didn't believe them, but they slandered them and they went after them and they made their lives miserable. And it's so upsetting. You know, there's a Karen Swallow Pryor, whom you know, mm -hmm. may know, she's at the Southeastern Baptist Theological sure. Seminary. I think it was her that had a line that said, there's something worse than a wolf 
in sheep's clothing, and that's a wolf in shepherd's clothing. Ooh. And these people um, portrayed themselves as, as shepherds over the church uh, and over these, uh, these survivors. And there should be a price in this world, and there should be a price in the world to come when you conduct yourself in that kind of way. And when you appropriate, as a Christian, the name of Christ to hurt the vulnerable and the weak and the people in the shadows of society, that's just inexcusable. Well, will there be consequences? What, what will happen as a result of this? I mean, we have all the receipts. We have the names. We have the dates. We have the emails. We have uh, the comments. We have the head of the executive committee, Ronnie Floyd, who was on uh, Trump's Evangelical Advisory Committee, writing an email saying that he received calls about the sexual abuse crisis and saying, well, our priority cannot be the latest cultural crisis, by which he meant paying attention to the victim. So what will the consequences be? Will they be held accountable? Will anything change? I, I don't know. And, it, and it'd be uh, when you talk to Russell uh, uh, next week, he would be a great person to ask. It, it seems to me, for, for one thing, whatever the, the consequences are going to be, they're, they're, they're not going to be commensurate with what, what these monsters did. I imagine there are going to be lawsuits. I don't know about the questions of the statute of limitations. Um, I think Russell, in a piece that, that he wrote for Christianity Today, uh, said that what it sounded to him that it was very much like a criminal conspiracy. Uh, that, that was involved. So I don't know the legal legal aspects of it. I just hope that there are consequences, both for the sake of justice and to send a signal to other people that there's there's got to be a cost to this. Will it change things? I mean, certainly in the Southern Baptist Convention, it's going to change things in the short term. But are the reforms that are necessary? And the report goes through a whole series of reforms going to be put in place. We'll see. And do these impulses and these dispositions and temperaments that we've been talking about, do they change? And then ask yourself, what about leading figures in the Southern Baptist Convention, seminary presidents and others, the people who have been on Twitter going after women like Beth Moore and Kristen DeMay and others, are they speaking out at this moment or are they trying to bury this story, pretend it, it never happened? You know, this is a level of depravity that's um, it's going to take a lot of time to undo. Well, as, as you're right, you know, many of those who appear in the report are misogynistic, judgmental, unforgiving, arrogant, and certain of their own righteousness. Hard to imagine a quick pivot for people like that. Uh, and again, I just want to stay with this. I, you know, I'm really struck by how so much of the pushback against, you know, the genuine problem comes from people who, you know, fought and convinced themselves that they were protecting, uh, even, you know, evangelism, where they were protecting Christianity, that the real evils were liberalism and secularism. And in order to fight the liberal, the, these evils of liberalism and secularism, they had to suppress news of, uh, and the reports of, of the survivors when, and again, to go back to your larger point, it is in fact, you know, the, the great threat turns out not to be liberalism and secularism. The real threat was them. The, the real yeah. threat was this attitude. It came from inside the house, Pogo. We met the enemy and he is us. Yeah, I think that's that's right. And I'd also say just, you know, psychology probably helps us understand some of what goes on. And I, I think that there were several things that, that, that happened in this situation and often happens with people. The first thing is that there was tremendous amount of fear fear that they had done things wrong, fear that they would be caught, fear that they would be humiliated and lose power. Then there's a kind of cognitive dissonance, right? I'm a person of faith and I'm doing things that are wrong. 
and you can't live, most people can't live with that degree of cognitive dissonance. So what happens? You begin to justify and rationalize what you do. So how did that manifest itself in this case? It was this notion of saying, you know, if this comes out, this is going to hurt the witness of the church. The SBC is doing so much good things, so many missions. And, you know, we don't want that to be hurt if this, if, if this comes out. So then the third move is, well, how do we keep this from happening? And then you say, well, we've got to go after the victims because they're a threat to to, to our larger uh, larger mission. And then they wrap it in in biblical language. This former general counsel who said that these women are part of a satanic uh, scheme. Wow. So what they've done is they've they've in a series of moves they've gone from being moral monsters themselves to thinking of themselves as as defenders of of the faith. And it's frightening and it's a cautionary tale because all of us struggle to one degree or another with rationalization and self-justification. But what we're talking about in this case is in another galaxy. So this feels like it has echoes to something we talked about much earlier in the podcast, which is the you know post-shame culture in our culture wars right now, that, you know, as, as everything intensifies, as the stakes become greater, the pressure becomes more intense. Never admit you were wrong. Never apologize. Never show any weakness whatsoever. And that's, that's hard to separate that from what you're describing. Yeah, that's right. Look, you know, I've, I've talked to so many pastors and theologians, uh, people involved in ministry, and they have, um, talked to me. I've actually wrote an article last year in, in The Atlantic on the sort of breakup of the evangelical church. And it was this importation of, of these kind of sensibilities that you and I have, have seen in the Republican Party. And they've really uh, found a home in the church. And a lot of pastors will tell you, look, we get people at our churches for maybe an hour or two hours a week, maybe every other week. These people are part of a, of a home group or a Bible study. But they're watching, you know, Fox News and listening to talk radio 15, 20 hours a week. And that's shaping how they think. And uh, this is a, an issue of, of catechesis is, is a term that a couple of pastors have used with me. And so I think what's what's happening has been made more vivid to me in the last half decade or, or so is that a lot of people of the Christian faith who honestly believe that the core of their identity is based on faith as people who are Christians. In fact, their core identity is different. It's sociological, it's cultural, it's political. And what they do is then they take the Bible and scriptures and use it to, uh, in a sense, proof text what they believe. But what is not core is, is the faith itself. And when that happens, the transformation that one reads about, if you read the words of, you know, of, of Paul, he talks about being a new creation and the new self and being transformed in the image uh, and likeness of, of Christ. Those things are, are, um, are jettisoned. And as I said earlier, what you're then left with is sort of the superstructure of religion, the judgmentalism of religion, the legalism of, of, uh, of religion, but without the love, without the grace, without the forgiveness. Mm. And, um, and that, uh, that turns out to be a kind of a wrecking ball. You know, I had Tim Alberta on yeah. the podcast, uh, I think about a week or so ago, and he was, you know, discussing the radicalization of some of the churches and, 
and how it is accelerating. And he believes, uh, or he, he posits that the shutdown during the pandemic really spurred this along. Do you have the same sense that that things have have accelerated in the last several years? This radicalization, this trend you just described. Yeah, there's no question in my in my mind. When I did that Atlantic as I was telling you about, I reached out to probably 50 or 60 pastors and theologians. And that was my premise, which is that more than at any point in, in my lifetime, it seemed like that was happening within the church. I didn't get a single dissenting voice. Really? In fact, uh, from a number of the pastors, they basically said, you don't know, you don't know the half of it. Something has happened within, within a lot of churches. I, I should say that Often what happens, pastors will tell you this, it's not anything like a majority of, of, of people within a congregation. I think you and I have talked about right. this before. What it what it requires to really disrupt a congregation and cause divisions is just a small handful of people who are energized and mm-hmm. persistent. And they can just cause a lot of trouble. That may happen, you know, for, for people who are in the session, if you're in the Presbyterian church, or or just maybe people in, in the congregation at it uh, itself. But there is a lot of burnout among pastors, a lot of pastors who are thinking about leaving the ministry. I don't really fault, for the most part, pastors in this situation. I mean, there are a few high-profile ones like Robert Jeffress and I would say even Franklin Graham and others who I think have have conducted themselves in in very problematic ways. But for the most part, I think a lot of pastors they were called to the ministry because they want to preach the gospel, because they want transformed lives, because they want to spread you know, the love of, 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 of Christ. Um, and their lives are being made uh, very, very difficult. I think a lot of this phenomenon is a, is a bottom up. And I think that the same kind of things that we're seeing, the divisions, the antipathy that characterize our culture in general, our political culture has really found a home in the church. And in some places, the churches have, have, uh, accelerated it and, and, uh, and amplified it. And, um, and so I think right now, you know, this country is in a tough place. It's been in tougher places. There's a tremendous capacity for self-renewal. And the church itself has survived. You know, the gates of hell shall not, shall not prevail, it says in the scripture. Um, but we have to be realistic and honest, and we have to be able to name where we are. And we're in a, we're in a, in a tough, uh, tough and difficult place right now. So where does this go? In 10, 20 years from now, what does the church look like? And I understand that's a, that's a broad question in the, the evangelical church. Are we going to see reformations? Are we going to see more schisms? What is going to happen? What, what will the, the church look like 20 years from now, do you think? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I think in the short term, you're going to see schisms. I think you're going to see some fracturing of denominations that occurs. And I, we're just in a period right now where the temperature is very high and the, the anger is um, very pronounced. But I think over time, it's going to settle down. And one of the reasons um, that I have some hope on this is that I do think that the younger generation of people of the Christian faith is sort of seeing this moral freak show and don't want anything to to do with it. And I think once this older generation fades away and a younger generation takes takes over, I think they'll have a very different approach to faith and ministry. And I think that having witnessed all of this and, and to some extent for them having been on the on the receiving end of the harshness, the, the anger, the targeting, the judgmentalism, they don't want to replay that. And I do have faith, just as, as a person of the Christian faith, you know, that the church will continue. And if you study the history of Christianity, it is a series of reformation and then mistakes, terrible moments, and then, you know, reformation again. And it just goes up and down 
and it's a twisted journey because we're a fallen people. But I suspect if, if we were to have this conversation 20 years from now, um, there would be uh, reasons for for some degree of uh, of hope. I don't think we're going to be in the same place we are. I don't think this can be uh, can be sustained. And yet, over that 20-year period, uh, you may have lost a generation. Yep. You refer to the generational catastrophe. The church may find a way to work through all of this, but in the meantime, there are going to be a lot of people who are watching this who are going to drift away or break decisively or who feel that the church is engaged in what one woman in your article describes as soul murder. No, that's right. That's the human cost of uh, of this kind of uh, of this kind of thing. Um, it's going to have an effect to people who are unbelievers, um, who, as I said, would look at this uh, what's unfolding and say, are, "Are you out of your mind? You think I want to be a part of this club? Uh, see what this goes on." And then there are the people within the faith, uh, in particular, and as it relates to the SBC, these women are survivors, and. You know, these pastors were in, entrusted uh, to take care of them and to help nurture them and to try and teach them and to have them turn on these women and then to lie about it and to slander them and vilify them. It's just enraging and horrific. And of course, there's going to be a, a cost to, uh, to that comment by Jennifer Lyle, who was one of the survivors mm-hmm. that you read, where she said, you know, it's the misappropriation of power. It doesn't reflect the Jesus I saw in the scriptures. I am so gutted. And you read that and you think, you know, I'm gutted too, but not to the degree that she and the other survivors were. They're the ones that have to to bear the, the cost of this. Peter Weiner is a senior fellow at the Trinity Forum, writer for the New York Times and the Atlantic. His latest book is The Death of Politics, How to Heal Our Frayed Republic After Trump. Peter, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast today. Thanks a lot, Charlie. I appreciate your voice practically every day. So you're doing an important thing, and it's always a pleasure to be with you. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast, and we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again.